You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. 13 Days of Halloween, Penance, a co-production of iHeart3D Audio, Blumhouse Television, and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Headphones recommended, listener discretion advised. She's come to. Why can't I move? The application is already prepped. A- am I in the hospital? The clinic. Make a fist for me. Why am I restrained? It's for your own safety. My safety? <laughs> you could hurt yourself. Or someone else. Why would I do that? Ow! That's the single dose. What the fuck? Might be enough. What did you just inject me with? Well, would you look at that? I believe she's already responding. Should it really be so fast-acting? She probably hasn't eaten. But this one, too, is a special case. What's happening? Well, Miss Rodriguez. That's not my name. (laughs) That's not... Just remain calm. My name. Everything will be much easier if you are... What did you give me? Tell me, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? I think I'm going to be sick. Maybe we gave her too much. Well, no science is exact. Let's give it a beat. Seven. Catherine! Can you talk her through it? Oh, I'd be delighted. But what... What am I? Just relax now. Talk to Catherine. And we'll be right back to check on you. (sighs) Imagine she'd be scheduled until next week. Happy accidents, I suppose. (laughs) 
Where are you? Just the next bed over. How does it feel? Strange. Mm. I can't. I can't seem to focus. Yes, it does give one a bit of a tumble. Well, if you can listen to my voice while the worst of it passes, you'll be right as rain again soon. Though I suppose I should warn you, I'm spectacularly tedious. <laughs> Listen to me too long, and you may end up quite literally bored to death. <laughs> Who are you? Oh, Catherine Sherwin. I'm a scholar of medieval theology. Sounds dreadful, doesn't it? I write books that no one reads about books that no one has read. My specialty is Saint Anselm of Canterbury and the ontological argument. You familiar? Um, no. Oh, no, I would you be? Anselm was a Catholic theologian of the 11th century, a thundering black-habited engineer of the Archonetis of God. Before he was my research subject, Anselm was a homegrown obsession of my father's. Yes, Daddy was a bit of an amateur theologian himself. He spent so many hours poring over Anselm, Augustine, and that whole spectral faculty of God-minded men from ages past. Of course, when I was a girl, I had about as much interest in all of that as I had in the design of sewer drains. But I suppose death does have a way of rearranging one's engrossments. My father died when I was in my first year at university. He was alone. Alone on one of his meditations, as he called them, hiking the peak of a mountain in Scotland called Carn Arran. It was a heart attack, or so they assumed. But would you guess this? He did make it to the top. They found him there in the cold rocks, in the fog, as high as the mountain goes. I always liked that. Felled by his ambition, but he did make it all the way up. After he was gone, I found myself home for Christmas, reading through the books and papers in his study. One story from a book on his desk that arrested my attention was about St Anselm's childhood. Apparently, as a young boy, Anselm had met face-to-face -face with God himself. Or so he said. The encounter took place on top of a mountain called Becca di Nona, near his hometown of Aosta in Italy. After the young Anselmo climbed the cliffs and scrambled over the ice and rocks to the summit... He was found by a wandering angel and ushered into the secret mansion of the Lord where they welcomed him with a meal, the bread of God. Now, when I read this, I couldn't help but wonder if Daddy's solitary mountaintop journeys were all in the vain hope that he would one day stumble into the garden of a secret manor and be welcomed inside by a seraphic majordomo and taste the bread of God himself. After I uncovered this window into my father's obsession, I had to learn more about Anselm. It was in this that I first crossed paths with my life's work and St Anselm's most favourite invention, the ontological argument for the existence of God. Are you ready for me to prove it to you? The existence of God. Anselm says, 
If God exists, he is the greatest conceivable being. No being greater could be imagined. Now I ask, would the greatest conceivable being be greater if it existed only in your mind, or if it existed both in your mind and in reality? Surely, if the being were real, it would be greater than if it were only imaginary. Therefore, the imaginary one is not the greatest. The real one is. Therefore, by definition, the greatest conceivable being must and does exist. Not just in here, but out there. Hmm. I take it you're not convinced? Some say the same form can be used to prove the existence of any silly thing. The most perfect island or the most perfect cup of lapsang tea. But that first night, when I read the proof, I was floored. It was late in the evening and I was alone in his study and everything was quiet, except for the crackle of snow falling outside the window. I walked out into the night and let the snow fall on my face and melt on my skin. Every sensation was rapturous. The air around me was bursting with the life force of the presence previously unknown. I knew there was a God. I had absolute proof. And that knowledge meant I would one day see my father again. I slept fitfully that night, dreaming about strange clouds that gathered round a mountaintop. When I woke in the morning, I ran to my father's study and read the ontological argument again. But something was wrong. The words were the same, but they lacked the force of certainty they had the night previous. To my horror, I was no longer persuaded. Instead of absolute proof, I was left with a humiliating sense of the hollowness of it all. Like the whole thing had been a mere word game, some kind of clever trick of grammar. I couldn't say what was wrong with Anselm's argument, but it just didn't feel right at all. And that's where I stayed for 30 years. I became a scholar of St Anselm. I owned a professorship at Oxford, married, had children, sent them off to university to foster their own obsessions. I wrote several books about Anselm, dozens of articles on the subject of the ontological argument, its modern proponents, and so on and so on, blah 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 But as many in my profession know, though they dare not confess, expertise has diminishing returns. In all those years, and through all that study... I never once again found what I was searching for. That moment, that night where I knew in my bones the ontological argument was sound and I knew he, or it, was out there. This rather boring life of flapping dust jackets and compiling endnotes went on until... One day, at an academic conference, I was approached by another professor. Not of theology or medieval studies, but of biochemistry. I'd just given a presentation on modern challenges on the ontological argument, and she met me afterwards to see if I would like to chat over a cup of tea. Her name was Professor Raymart. 
She was a dashing woman with long black hair and livid eyes, and her attention was so dangerously exciting I could hardly say no. Reinhardt led me to a secluded corner in the college's library. Once we were snuggled away in our little den, to my astonishment, she narrated that she had one night long ago become absolutely convinced that the ontological argument had force, only to find upon waking the next morning that she was once again doubtful. But she had never been able to shake the memory of the catharsis, the almost psychedelic arising to a second substance of life that came from that one night when it seemed true. Since then, she had thought about the argument every day, but with a different sort of lens than I had. Raymart asked me, Suppose that the argument is, at bottom, correct, and that it does prove the greatest conceivable being must exist in reality, out there. Why are we so quick to assume we know what the other qualities of the greatest conceivable being are? Might not our idea of greatness be an illusion? A biological contingency based on our ancestral environment? For example, we believe the greatest conceivable being to be the biggest, because it is cooked into our animal brains that bigger beasts win over smaller ones in a fight. But sweep aside the preferences of timorous homo sapiens and ask from the perspective of, say, an atom of hydrogen... What are the qualities of the greatest conceivable being? Hmm. Might Anselm be proving the existence of a different kind of being altogether? And if so, what are those qualities that are the greatest as conceivable by the universe? The true superlatives, if you will. This stirred something both thrilling and frightening in me. I remembered for the first time in years the dream I had about the clouds round the mountaintop. Anyway, Raymart had a theory about our mutual obsession with Anselm's argument that to truly grasp the proof through ontology requires not just an intellectual understanding, but an experience. She used the analogy of an alien life form from a burning sulfurous planet who could never understand the wetness of water. No matter how many papers it read on the chemical properties of H2O, the wetness must be seen with the eyes and felt with the skin and tasted with the tongue. Until you've had the experience of a damp cloth wrung out and dripping on your toes, you don't understand what water is. After all, didn't Anselm himself taste of the bread of God? This seemed true enough to me. I'd spent years trying to recreate the experience of that night in my father's study, and I didn't know anything that could conjure it again. Well, she did. Raymart had, in her laboratory, happened to isolate a compound called 7-methylionamine. This molecule was an enzymatic byproduct of a species of alpine lichen that grew on rocks above the tree line in certain mountain ranges. It just so happened she noticed that this molecule was similar in structure to a number of other molecules that are known as entheogens. 
those used in religious ceremonies to bring messages from the gods. She said that she had on more than one occasion happened to ingest a significant amount of this compound, and she believed it had given her profound insights into the ontological argument and the being to which it pointed. Naturally, I asked what these insights were. She said that they were difficult to put into words. She said I would need to see for myself. I would need to wring the cloth to understand what it meant for water to be wet. So I took what she offered me. It was a white powder in a small plastic bag. She gave me a dosage advisory, said she'd be in touch. I mulled over it for a while. I'd never taken drugs of any sort, not even a puff of grass in my school years. I only drank wine at Christmas time, but I felt I owed it to myself, or perhaps to Daddy, to understand what Raymart was hinting at. It was a night my husband was away on some silly mission of his, collecting fossils in Devon or some such, so I had the house to myself. I lit candles. Isn't that humorous? Why did I like candles? It just seemed the thing to do. But I only had a half a dozen or so in the house. So there they were, my six candles melting on the sofa table while I waited for the drug to take effect. I didn't know what to expect. And for a long time, nothing happened. I rubbed my toes on the carpet and took deep breaths and waited to feel something. I confess, after some time, I grew rather bored. I began to wonder if the powder had lost its potency or if Raymart had been pulling some kind of prank. For a while, I became convinced this must be the case and that I had just swallowed several grams of baby powder dissolved in a cup of tea. <laughs> I was so embarrassed. What a stupid thing to even try. But then, while I was sitting there feeling sorry for myself, I witnessed something quite strange. In my boredom, I'd flicked on the television, which was showing a football match. But at some point, without me noticing, everyone had stopped playing. No one was running or kicking, no line-up for a penalty. And they weren't leaving the pitch either. They were just standing there, all of them, stock still on the green. The crowd in the stands had fallen silent. And one by one, all of the players began looking up, up into the sky. At what, I had no idea. I suppose at the camera, hovering over the pitch, because our eyes met. I was looking at them, and they were looking at me. No one moved for what seemed like ages. They gazed into my eyes. I said to myself, no, that is rather odd. Then one of the football announcers answered me. He said, scarcely ever happens. And I said, what makes them do that? And the man at the microphone said, they're showing respect for the arrival of an important guest. I said, well, I suppose I'm flattered. And he said, I'm not talking about you. The hair stood up on the back of my neck. I felt jets of cold water rushing over my bones. I swirled round to look behind me but saw nothing except the blank wall. 
However, I knew there was someone in the house with me. I didn't know who it was. I said, I'm afraid. But the announcer wouldn't reply again. The football players all stood there looking right at me, not smiling, saying nothing, just watching what I was going to do. Suddenly, they all raised their arms and pointed upward to the sky. Without warning, the telly switched off. Then all the lights began to grow dim. The lamp bulbs faded to grey, and even the flames on my half-dozen candles shrunk down to marabond pinpricks of light. I stood, and they all snuffed out completely. The only light left was what I could see up the staircase from the second story. It was as if a tide of darkness were rising through the house... In that darkness, there were things. I could hear them. Soft squeaks and shuffling on the wood of the floor, like little infants crawling towards me to play, but without laughter or even breath. I lunged for the staircase and climbed it into the safety of the light. But no sooner had I come into the upper hall than the lamps there began to fade as well. The dark flood was rising ever more, driving me up and up. I heard the crawling of the creatures now upon the stairs. How could I go any higher? Then I looked to the ceiling and saw, yes, in the little crack around the door to the loft, there was a glow of yellow light. I snatched the chain, levered down the door, and scurried up the ladder as fast as I could. was lit with a single yellow light bulb. The shadows were throbbing, and there in the corner, just within reach of the light, there it was, the stack of things from Daddy's office. I tore open the boxes and began paging maniacally through the papers inside. These were not my father's books, which were now part of my own library, but his notes and his diaries. I blazed through the pages, searching for something that would make sense of it all. I said out loud, what is it you want to show me? And then a voice speaking from a darkened corner of the loft whispered, That moment, the tattered notebook in my hand fell open to a page where my father had made a long diary entry about plans for one of his meditations, a mountain hike at Ben Lowers. He noted his transportation, his packing list, the books he would take with him, etc., etc. But after his return from the mountain, the entry was only two words, written with such force his pen had cut through the page it said, Most Ancient. After this, I have very little memory of that night. I know there was something else the man in my house told me, something important, but I couldn't recall. Beyond that, only faint sensations of fibres like soft hair brushing against my skin and hearing a melody... Mm-hmm.
You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids, no plug right, needed. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. <laughs> you can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Do you love fashion? Do you love getting compliments on how well you're dressed? Are you always seeking the latest trends? Then we're talking to you. BostonProper.com is your fashion destination and the only place to go for all those nods, head turns, and new styles. No matter the day, season, or occasion, Boston Proper has what you're looking for. Sophisticated, confident clothing designed to flatter and get noticed. So visit BostonProper.com now and start creating your perfect wardrobe. Boston Proper. Wear it like no one else. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. When I woke the next morning, I was in a rather strange position, lying curled on the floor of my son's bedroom, with a vague sense of discomfort in my mouth and a taste of salt on my tongue. When I went to wash up, I discovered the source of the taste in my mouth, which was an unexpected gap in the molars on the lower left side of my jaw. I searched round the house for the missing tooth to no avail, but <laughs> no sense wailing about a lost tooth here and there. I was exhilarated about what had been revealed to me. The most ancient. I tried to call Raymond on the telephone that very morning. Could it be that most ancient was one of her true superlatives? Had I and Daddy before me somehow discovered one of the objective properties of the greatest conceivable being? It's hard to express how true and how important this discovery felt. I was tingling all over. But, alas, Raymart's telephone rang and rang and rang without answer, so I couldn't share what I'd found. It was, I think, the loneliest I had ever been. Oh, but I was ravenous to learn more. A few nights later, I fabricated a story to feed my husband about an overnight trip to visit relatives on my side. Instead, I set out to have another meeting with the presence. This time, I wanted to learn as much as I possibly could, so I ignored Raymart's dosage instructions and took the rest of what she'd given me in one go. I had landed at the ruins of an abbey in the East Country thinking this setting would aid in perceiving the qualities of Anselm's god. Of course, I had to do a bit of fence jumping, since the grounds were closed to tourists after sunset, but I didn't think much of it. Little was left but a broken wall on the southern face and a row of stone archways, all of it now covered in moss so green it seemed to glow in the dark. <laughs> I took the powder and waited. Writing, meanwhile, in my journal, which I had brought along so I could record my experience. Despite my previous encounter, it took long enough that I began to wonder if... And you may laugh at me for this, but so be it. 
I wondered if it had never done anything in the first place. And the source of my previous experience had been nothing but my own mind. Perhaps in the effort of arriving at some form of madness. <laughs> oh, but as I put all this down to paper, I began to hear voices. Singing a quiet melody. It was unlike any chant I'd ever heard before. I tried to sing along. And then... I was somewhere else entirely. The abbey was gone. I was floating up as if clutching to a trail of steam rising in the sky. But I wasn't simply rising up. I was rising backwards, backwards in time. I saw the earth below, my feet, with civilization retreating, every road fading to grass, and then grass fading to stone, and then stone to icy waters, and then icy waters to entrails of flame, a landscape of illimitable, writhing worms made of molten rock. The earth glowed like a forge, and I was silent. And then he was there with me. The presence from the shadows in my loft. The one who would show me the way. I asked him, Are you going to welcome me into the mansion of God? The voice said, Not yet. The sterile earth burned below us. I asked what we were looking at. He said, I gathered my wits and remembered why I had come. I asked him of the ontological argument. I asked him what it was I had understood the night in my father's study that I could no longer see now. And damn it to hell, as I tell it, I can't explain precisely what he said. He did whisper something to me from just behind my ears so that I could feel his breath through my hair. Something so... So, not words, more like a, a melody. A melody that somehow in itself carried a logic and I knew, I knew, in some sense, it contained a hidden premise that made the ontological argument irrefutable. I could almost put it into words. It was right behind the veil in the back of my mind. Oh, I felt around for my notebook so I would be ready to write it down as soon as I worked it out. But then, then below us, the earth opened its mouth. A chasm of unimaginable heat and darkness. I asked, must I go in there? He whispered. change came over me, the beginning of an unfolding of sensation into impossible dimensions of strangeness and understanding and pain, thought without meaning, sight without light. 
there was an infinite more, but I could not remember it. I came to the next morning with a policeman gruffly shaking me awake. I'd slept in the grass at the crest of a hill somewhere beyond the abbey. I dealt with the policeman quickly as I could and darted off to my car. Leaving through the pages of my journal, I'd left several indecipherable illustrations, along with scribbled notes from the part of the night I could not recall. One note said, The terrible angel, the majordomo. Another said, The bread of God. It is of God, but it is not bread. Hmm. And finally, at the end of my notes, I had written with such force that my pen tore through the pages. Most secret. Upon reading this, my heart raced. Could this be another of the true superlatives of the greatest conceivable being? It must be, though it made less sense than the last. It was hard to reconcile the evangelical message of Christ with the idea that God's greatness could be a secret. But nevertheless, I knew this insight had to be correct. I would make sense of it somehow. Next time, I would understand. In this excitement, I knew immediately I had to get more of the powder. I called and called for Professor Raymond dozens of times, but she never answered the telephone. Eventually, I became so desperate, I booked a plane ticket and made my way to her university. After a bit of asking around, I came to the correct building. I found her office locked, with parcels overflowing her mailbox. So I went to the office next door, where I met a small, timid-looking man, framed with a bald head and neatly trimmed beard. He was friendly at first, asked if I needed help... I told him I was looking for Raymart. He said that she'd recently gone on sabbatical, and he didn't know when she would be back. He asked who I was. I said I was a research partner, and that we were considering authoring a book chapter together. The little man frowned. My deception must have been rather obvious. I'm really not good at lying. He asked what we were writing about, and in a panic for what to say, I blurted out, A, a, a compound... A compound called 7-methyl-ionamine. He stiffened, rose from his chair and took a step backward, as if suddenly afraid of me. He looked me up and down. His voice became very quiet. You're not one of them, he said. Did they send you? I asked who he meant. With evident terror, he whispered, The monks. I said I didn't know what he was talking about, but that I had been given some of the compound by Raymart and I needed more. Could he get it for me? He said no and told me to go away. I explained I was desperate. I told him I would pay anything for it. He began shouting, shouting for me to leave his office and never come back. Not knowing what to do, I hid in a lavatory stall down the hall until later that night when everyone had left and the building was locked up. With a bit of a jimmy, I broke into Raymart's laboratory and began looking around. 
I ransacked the cupboards and the sample drawers and the file cabinets. Nothing. There was no powder anywhere. But then... Something caught my attention. A large photograph lying in the heap among all the papers from the file cabinets. A photograph of a rock covered in splotches of grey, green and yellow. I knelt and picked up the picture. It was a patch of lichen. The photo was dated from several years before and it was labelled Source of Sample, North Face of Khan Aran. I felt something grip inside my gut. I'd heard that name before, long before. Khan Aran was the mountain of Daddy's last meditation, where they found him at the top. Without returning home, I booked another ticket and made my way to Aberdeen. There I rented a car. I was delirious, no telling how long I'd gone without proper sleep. I drove up a long, lonely road through the Highland Glen to the foot of Khan Aran. The peak of the mountain was ringed with grey fog when it came into view, and the rocks along the path were slick from the morning's rain. I began to hike up the slope, clutching the photograph of the lichen. I made my way up through the conifer forest, then on a steep incline over a ridge like the spine of a great beast. I looked all around for the lichen, venturing far off the hiking trail, turning over rocks and checking their undersides like a child collecting insects. And finally, at long last, I found it. On the upturned face of a huge flat black boulder, the lichen was a papery mass of pale green and yellow substance that somehow looked almost delicious. I assure you, it was not. It was poisonously bitter, with the texture of old rope. But I choked down as much as I could. I managed quite a bit. I waited and waited for what seemed like hours on end, but I felt nothing save for an increasingly vicious stirring of nausea. Eventually I had to be sick in the weeds beside the boulder. (coughs) Had I lost my mind? I didn't even know if it would work this way. Did Raymart have to do some sort of chemistry to isolate something within the lichen? Was I even sure I'd found the right organism? It was a miserable defeat. I sat on the boulder, ill and exhausted, and sulked in self-pity as clouds gathered their grey bulk evermore overhead. The sun went down and the shadow of the mountain swept over the valley to the east at a racing clip. As I thought about it, I realised Daddy may well have looked out over the same gloomy view his last day on Earth. Did he sit on the same boulder and rest halfway up the mountain? Was he surrounded by pale pink frogs just like these? Would he have noticed the way their skin looked like rare veal leaking juices under the pressure of the carving fork? 
I tried to ask the rosy froglets if they had any memory of him, but they were not especially talkative. Instead, they began to leave my side all at once, hopping in a frenzy up the mountain slope. Huh, how strange, I thought. It was almost as if they were fleeing in terror. So I turned back to look down at the valley, and I saw what it was. The waterline of darkness. I had felt just the edges of it in my house a few nights before. Now I saw it complete in its awful majesty, stretching as far as an ocean would have. A mist of moonless blackness rose from the valley and ascended the mountainside. And hidden in the darkness came the things, creatures of a chilling primeval innocence, the silent Cambrian infants crawling on hands and knees. My mind was seized with flashes of what could happen if the little children overtook me. They did not laugh or shout, but they would play. My heart contracted with terror. I scrambled from the boulder and ran as fast as I could up the mountain path. Up above me were the silhouettes of several men, whose skin seemed to glitter with dull reflections in the grey light. When I came close, I saw they were man-shaped things, made not of flesh but of thousands of little metal objects, safety pins, batteries and fishhooks, all held together by a sort of animate magnetism. They were slow moving. They begged me for help in their rattling language. But I couldn't stop. I, I ran past and left them behind to be played with. The path steepened and I climbed with a ferocity of which I wouldn't have thought myself capable. I was driven now not only by the fear of what rose from below, but by a delirious ecstasy of what lay above. Stone shattered under my toes like globes of glass, and the soil gave off the aroma of bread crust. The boulders that lined the path bloomed with the sacred lichen in shapes of naked bodies, humming with pleasure and spitting up masses of oysters and offal that fell at my feet as I passed. This, this was their way of showing respect. Meanwhile, all around, black-habited monks stood guard underneath prisoners who were hoisted up to the sky upon Catherine wheels. My namesake, I thought. The men and women lashed on the wheels sang together. Yes, it was all starting to make sense. I understood that the prisoners on the wheels were not being punished. They were machines. Machines for generating a kind of power like the turbines in a dam. The monks standing guard under the wheels of torture all raised their arms when they saw me, all pointing in the same direction. To the top, just over the last ridge of rock. As I climbed above, finally... I felt him. The presence. The major domo. He was looming just behind me, breathing on my neck. But I knew it would be terribly bad manners to turn and look. 
Without a word, he guided me through the fog until the jagged rocks of the peak gave way to a smooth paved pathway of flagstones and mortar, surrounded by crisp green hedges on either side. It was a secret garden path leading me to a mansion with its windows bleeding yellow light. My voice trembling, I asked the Major Damo, Will you take me inside? The Major Domo whispered. Perhaps. But not yet. I understood there was something I had to do first. I had to meet someone. There was a lanky human shadow on the path just ahead. When I saw the figure, my heart leapt into my throat. I thought, Daddy. But as I ran to meet him, with tears gathering in my eyes, the shape that came into focus was all wrong. It was not my father. It was Raymart, standing athwart the path, wearing a Cheshire cat grin. I asked her what she was doing here, and she leaned in to embrace me, whispering, Catherine, I have the most wonderful news. I have been given a research grant by God Almighty, and you are to be my assistant. I was flummoxed, to say the least. I said, but his house is right there. Can't I go inside and learn what he is like? Raymond said, You will, but you're not ready yet. First, you must learn the secret, the oldest secret. She then stepped back and unbuttoned her blouse. And her skin was not skin, but a sort of plate thronged with legs, hundreds, thousands of dancing, undulating, articulated legs, like the underside of a horseshoe crab. A tear of blue blood leaked from the corner of her eye. She came in close to embrace me again. In horror, I tried my best to recoil, but now the Major Domo stood behind to hold me in place. Raymond's breath smelled like copper. The legs wriggled and flexed close enough to tickle my stomach. I screamed, No! No, this is not what I wanted! Raymond leaned to my ear and said, Lord, let us be your My memory stops there. I woke the next morning lying on the cold rocks of the mountaintop, parched, stiff as a plank. There was a man dressed in a black habit kneeling beside me, touching my arm. He said, Good heavens, are you all right? He must have seen me looking at his clothes and answered without my asking. I'm one of the brothers of the monastery here at Khan Aran. You look like you've taken a fall. Would you like me to get some help? I told him not to bother, and I rose to go on my way, limping on a leg I had injured somehow in the night. 
But as I was walking away, he said, Were you invited in? I stopped. I asked, In where? He said, Beyond the secret garden, into his house. I rushed back to the monk's side. What do you know about it? I asked. The monk smiled. He said, Are you seeking to believe in order that you may understand, or seeking to understand in order that you may believe? I felt a hopeless despair come over me. I didn't know. In truth, I feared I'd lost track of what it was I was trying to prove and who I was trying to prove it to. But I was in his presence, I said, nearly in his mansion. I see, said the monk. The greatest conceivable being, I said. He smiled placidly as if to humor me. The God who called out to Abraham, I said. But then the monk's expression changed. He looked amused. Oh, him, you think? Down here on this bleak mountaintop with us? I didn't know what to make of that. The monk said to me, If there were two beings, both infinitely beyond your understanding, and both claimed to be the greatest, how would you tell them apart? I had no answer. I asked, Will I ever understand what he is? The monk said, Well now, if you wish to be welcomed into his manor and taste of his bread, I suggest you make yourself a courteous house guest. I said, How would one do that? He said, For one thing, when a courteous house guest comes to visit, she always brings a gift. I asked, well, what should she bring? He laid a gentle hand on my shoulder and said, What is most precious? Looking back, I realized the sheer hubris of my initial endeavor. Though I find myself in good company with the likes of Daddy and St. Anselm himself... I know now that the mysteries of totality are too much for one mind alone, and with alacrity I settle for just a glimpse. So I turned myself over to Dr. Raymart's care, in which I have been ever since. Ever since? What do you mean? Well, call me a test case. An experiment in the long-term effects of 7-methylionamine on human consciousness. A guinea pig, if you like. But one of many. And even a lab rat likes to have company in her cage. (laughs) You're saying... You're saying they drugged me too. Oh, I envy you, you know. Experiencing it all for the first time. No! No! Help! No, get me out! Let me out! Damn it, Catherine! No, no! What did you say? Let me out! Nothing untruthful. Let me out! Her heart rate spike. Let me out! Crap another injection! All of you, get away from me! What's the course? Leave me alone! It's a tranquilizer with one more dose of 7-methylionamide. No, stop! Stop! No!
тебя в клинике. Вы все такие невыносимые после того, как лекарства. Не могу ходить, не могу Сегодня ночью тебя вырвет петки. Иди к свету. Go to what the light. Well, look who's back. Frip. I wasn't sure you were still with us. Frip, I, I... Sigh. Everything is so overwhelming. What happened to you? The door. And the dungeon. And the doctor. <sighs> Did she put you on a new course of treatment? Yes. And I, I am... Uh, I don't know if I can take it. You can. It will run its course. How? How do I... Just relax. Okay. Lay down on the bed. Okay. Okay. Now, imagine you are in a river. Right in the middle where the current is strongest. You can't swim against it. Uh-uh. You can't fight back. Nope, I can't. But... You can float. Okay. Don't fight it. Okay. Just let the current move you. Okay. And you will float downstream. Okay. Okay. Hey, Fripp. My cell. They didn't... They didn't give it away. Who would they have given it to? Fripp. Have you seen anyone walking the halls at night? You mean besides the guards? Have you heard her singing? Quiet now. Okay. Just float <sighs> okay. downstream. Thank you, Fripp. Fripp? Thirteen Days of Halloween, Penance, starring Natalie Morales. Episode 4, Evaluation. Written by Joe McCormick. Editing and sound design by Chandler Mays. Featuring the voices of Roz Gentle, Blair Chandler, Alex Bowling, Jay Jones, Raphael Corkill, and Wilbur Fitzgerald. With music by Noel Brown. 
Directed by Alexander Williams. Executive producers Aaron Mankey, Noah Feinberg, Chris Dickey, Matt Frederick, and Alexander Williams. Supervising producers Trevor Young and Josh Thane. Producers Jesse Funk, Rima Ilkayali, Noemi Griffin, Chandler Mays, and Casby Bias. Script editing by Lauren Vogelbaum, story consultants Ben Bolin and Matthew Riddle, casting by Sunday Bowling CSA and Meg Mormon CSA. Production coordinator, Wayna Calderon. Production assistants, Jenna Johnson and Winona Lowe. Theme music by Rose Azerti, with vocals by Anna Humler. Recorded at This Is Sound Design Studios in Burbank, California. Engineered by Ross Arono. Special thanks to Romelia Osorio, Nathan Rule, Glenn Nishida, and Rob Mosca. 13 Days of Halloween was created by Matt Frederick and Alexander Williams and is a production of iHeart Podcasts, Blumhouse Television, and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Learn more about the show at grimandmild.com slash 13 days and find more podcasts from iHeartRadio by visiting the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Happy Halloween. Looking for a fabulous fashion brand that celebrates you? Then look no further than Boston Proper, where styles are designed with you in mind, so you can look and feel amazing, no matter the day, season, or occasion. At bostonproper.com, you'll find fashion that knows you best. For over 30 years, Boston Proper has been the fashion destination for confident women who want to elevate their look with unique, sophisticated clothing at affordable prices. Visit bostonproper.com today. Boston Proper. Wear it like no one else. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.